0: Hello, and welcome to another in our occasional series of The Sitcom Club Interviews, our companion show to The Sitcom Club itself. Today I'm in conversation with Nigel Planer, who of course you'll know from his role as Neil in The Young Ones, and also from The strip Presents, The Grimleys, and many more shows over the last 30 years. I began by asking Nigel about his favourite sitcoms as a viewer, before he began his acting career.
1: As a kid, I remember um, Till Death is Due Part, Step, toe, and Son... Dad's arm is a bit later. I think that's probably because I became an actor quite quickly. And as I understand it, your
0: very first sitcom role was a Brian Ricks piece called A Roof Over My Head, which you had a role in, and also... Oh, yes,
1: I did. I had a role in that, but I'm not even sure if that was my very first one. My very first one might have been in the Harry Worth show, How's Your Father? Now, I don't know which one of those came first, but in my memory, which may be very faulty says that Harry Worth came before the Brian Ricks.
0: I believe, let me just check. Oh, actually, I believe Brian Ricks was 77, and Harry Worth, according to our notes here, was 80.
1: Oh, blimey.
0: Aside from actually getting the roles themselves, which I guess would be to your advantage in terms of working up your resume as an actor, were getting those parts, were they useful experience in as much as they allowed you to see up-close mechanics of sitcom recording and the television studio environment?
1: Yes, they were very interesting to work in and see how it all works. Mostly the rehearsal room, because I'd been to see some sitcoms being recorded. A mate of mine, uh, his dad, worked in the BBC, and he used to get us tickets. So I'd sat in the audience a few times when I was even younger. I saw something called The Waris and the Carpenter being recorded with somebody, Griffiths. I think I even saw an episode of Bootsy and Snudge or something like that with Alfie Bass in it. If it wasn't Bootsy and Snudge itself, it was a sort of spin-off a later version still with Alfie Bass in it. So I can remember seeing how sitcoms got recorded from a really quite an early age. Kind of been that early because how how old are people uh, you know, what's the age restriction on being in the BBC? But it, I certainly wasn't sixteen. I seem to remember I was 13 or 12 or something like that. Maybe the age restriction has you know been put on later. Or maybe we just got snuck in because of the guy's dad.
0: I think that certain shows may have had particular age ratings. And I guess also it might have pended on the studio, like Boots and Snudge would have been, I guess, at Granada, whereas BBC, Shepherds, Bush, they may have had different rules.
1: Uh, well, it was definitely not Boots in Snudge then, because it was Alfie Bass. But it would have been some a later incarnation of that because Granada's up in Manchester and it wasn't in Manchester. I I was in London.
0: Now, one thing that I only just discovered yesterday when I was looking up some bits and pieces about your early work, I was aware that you had performed with Peter Richardson at the Comedy Store in the run-up to working on The Young Ones a few years later, but I wasn't aware, actually, that you'd written sketches for Nottingham Clock News, including, if I understand correctly, the That's Life spoof.
1: That's right. Well... When you say including, that's a bit of a grand way of putting it. It was just that sketch, actually. We wrote, Myself and my brother, Roger, who, who went on to write quite a lot for Not the Nine O'Clock News, wrote some sketches. And he was writing sketches with his friend, Mark Smith, who worked in LBC for years. And I wrote some sketches with my brother, Roger. None of them got used except for this That's Life sketch, which was basically Roger and Mark Smith's sketch which myself and Peter Richardson added to. So that's the only sketch that got on and got on the records that I had anything to do with. My brother went on and wrote quite a lot for them and then went on to write for um, Smith and Jones as well.
0: In the run-up to The Young Ones, I just understand initially when The Young Ones was conceived, it would have been Adrian Emerson, yourself, much missed, Rick Mail, of course, and also Peter Richardson as the foursome. But as I understand it, there was some kind of conflict with Peter Richardson and perhaps the BBC, and he decided not to continue.
1: Yeah, that's roughly it. I think it was an unknown quantity. You know, Ben Elton was writing scripts with Rick and Lisa, and he wrote the four characters, the students and Alexi, and we happened to be those four characters, as it were. But the BBC were not necessarily committed at the beginning to buying a whole comedy, already formed comedy team. A broadcaster usually likes to make their own teams up. You know, even Monty Python was a broadcaster's made team. I don't know quite the ins and outs of it, but certainly there was a certain amount of conflict between Peter and the BBC. Uh, Not so much with the BBC, but he saw it a different way, shall we say. They had artistic differences, him and um, the producer, Paul Jackson. You know, so we saw other people for the role.
0: Now, that was precisely what I was going to ask you next. Between Peter Richardson opting out and Christopher Ryan getting the part of Mike, were there other people? Were there other names in the frame for that role?
1: Oh, there were hundreds. It's a wonderful game. You know that game when you say, God, James Kahn turned down One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or that kind of... Do you know what I mean? All the people who didn't do it. But I think it would be unfair to say to Chris, oh, look, you were 50th on the list or something. But, I mean, at the time... Casting went mad, you know. Everybody said, Well, Christ, we're not going to have Peter. Who could we have? And we went through so many people and auditions and thinking about it and everything. But Chris, the moment he walked in, was uh, the man, the absolute man. We all just immediately agreed that that was the right guy.
0: And of course, with your work in the comedy store and then with the two individual stand up shows at Paul Jackson produced Bang Bang Out Go The Lights. Of course, you had worked with Adrian Emerson and also Rick Mail for many years by this
1: point, hadn't you? That's right, yes. And Alexi. Yeah. And it does come
0: across even, I mean, when I was watching the shows at that time, I was only a youngster. And then, of course, I revisited them years later when they came out in VHS and so on. But it does come across that there is a tremendous amount of energy. And Rick Mill, for example, looks like he's just absolutely bounding with ideas and energy and just constantly full of beans is that am i reading that correctly
1: yeah it was a lot of energy and there was a lot of yeah we by that point we were well cranked up as it were we were on form we had been working together for two or three years we toured australia we'd done the comedy store the comic strip the comic strip tour of england the comic strip tour of australia we'd all done bits and pieces of tellys. myself and peter doing friday night and saturday morning and As you mentioned, Boom Boom Out Go The Lights. We'd been having various stabs at getting on telly, and by the time we got to the young ones, it was quite explosive, really.
0: One thing that has caused quite a bit of debate on the internet is this issue of the mysterious fifth roommate. I wonder if you can shed any light on this at all. There's a number of stills from the show, and including a couple of production stills, which have in effect what looks like a second Neil in the shot. This one, for example, there's some post photographs of the four of you and in front of you is another hippie character with hair right in front of the face. And this has actually led to a vast debate online on websites like the Easter egg archive and so on, will have debated who is this mysterious fifth roommate.
1: I think there was a sort of a lot of intention. There was also a lot of subliminal flashing of images. I don't know if you remember that as well. Any kind of spooky trick that we could do we did and the idea as in any student digs that there's one bloke there who's, who's just been sitting there and um, yeah we did always try and get you know one scene when there was a bloke just sitting there in the in the corner do you know I can't even remember whether it was the same bloke each week or not um might have been a different bloke if his face was covered in hair but we did bung in a, an extra mystery person I think
0: some people have wondered online whether that was going to be some sort of big reveal and maybe that was something that was being kept for episode six or something like that. But I guess, as you say, it was just something that's there
1: too. It it was us just being stupid. It's a Hitchcock-style red (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, exactly. But but the whole show is full of all that, that kind of attempt, you know, a lot of non-sequiturs and weird little clues to things that don't exist. Do you know what I mean? That's all part of it.
0: I'm sure this would have been something that you would have been asked many, many times in the years following The Young Ones. But were there any serious talks about any kind of revival in the years following? Because, of course, a lot of sitcoms, particularly in the early 21st century and so on, a lot of sitcoms then did come back for another turn, another staging.
1: Yes, it's a question I you're quite right. I have been asked again and again, Um, obviously not now. No, there was never any serious talk about bringing it back. I think it would have been a bad idea. I personally wish it had gone on a bit longer in the first place, because I think it was just hitting its stride, really. I think it was a shame to stop it right there. But no, we couldn't bring it back. There was a talk about seven years ago, oh, let's do a Christmas extra, you know, let's do a one-off comic relief thing, and they're all in an old people's home, going around in wheelchairs, competing with each other, and They're incontinent, and Neil now owns the old people's home because he's a big businessman. Vivian's a gynecologist, anything else you could think of. But no, it never caught on, and I think the feeling was at the time we're going to look pretty sad, actually, because as you said, there was a lot of energy in the first place, and we're all a bit old now. It might have been funny having us all shouting at each other as old people, but um, it's not to be now.
0: Indeed. And I was thinking, like a show, for example, such as The Goodies, where they had the, the Goodies revival a few years ago, where you had Timber Taylor and Graham Garden on stage, for example. I'm not sure whether something like that, for example, might have ever have been mooted, but I think you did actually do a stage show in between Series 1 and 2, didn't you?
1: We did. We drummed up a load of new material in, in between Series 1 and 2. Went on stage and did a load of stuff, it, ostensibly, as I say, to drum up new material for the series. I doubt if any of that material ended up in the series, actually. But that was good fun. It gave us a taste of how big the series had been as well, because we, when we'd been on tour previously, our audience was much smaller, and suddenly we'd, we'd done the first series, and we suddenly found we had a huge fan audience, you know. So it was a good fun tour there.
0: And you also had as well some spin-off bits and pieces around about 1984-85. You had Neil's Book of the Dead, for example, and you also had, I think it's just been remastered and re-released earlier this year, you had Neil's Heavy Concept album
1: re-released Neil's Heavy Concept Album on esoteric recordings just early this year in March. And I had to listen to it. I haven't heard it for years. Some of it's really good, I think. Some of it is not quite so good. But uh, musically, it's great. Dave Stewart did a fantastic job. That's not Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics. That's Dave Stewart of Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin. And there's a lovely version of Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy Man on it, which manages to be funny and musically quite cool at the same time. That's a very difficult thing to do, I think, with comedy. Usually the comedy ruins the music, or the music ruins the comedy. On the Neil album, just in a few places, we managed to get it you know, funny enough, but musically good enough as well.
0: And you not only appeared on Top of the Pops with Hole in My Shoe, but also you presented for a week the Australian version of Top of the Pops, which I think was called Countdown, in late '85.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. because uh, uh holy my and Neil went went very big in Australia, so I did a tour a live tour, promoting the record and as you say, doing Molly Meldrum show and um Countdown and doing a lot with a with a brilliant Australian comedy double act called Los Trius Ring Barcus, who we'd seen the year before when we did the comic strip tour and made friends with them. And uh, one of them, there was Stephen and Neil, a very, really funny double act. A poor guy called Neil, because we went out there on the tour just at the time the hit single was out, Hole in My Shoe was out. And the audience was shouting, Neil, Neil. And he had a similar sort of act in that, you know, he was the bullied character in the double act. And uh, I think it was really a, a pain for him, that having the audience shout, Neil, and, and then having to think, oh, they just want Nigel to come on now.
0: And if I understand it correctly, I don't think it was a particularly enjoyable experience for yourself. You also were involved in an American restaging of The Young Ones for the Fox Network called Oh No, Not Them, some years later.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, I was. It wasn't unenjoyable. It just didn't go to series. I haven't seen that for a while. Interesting thing about it is it's before The Simpsons. This is just around the time that The Simpsons was about to come out. And the theme tune... Is a claymation sequence of the characters from The Young Ones with Danny Elfman music. Danny Elfman's the guy who writes the music for The Simpsons and Beetlejuice and all those movies. That kind of that sound, that's kind of a Danny Elfman sound. And the opening sequence to Oh No Not Them is like a pre-run for the opening sequence of The Simpsons. Even to the extent that we go through all these racing things and then go boom, into the sofa just like they do in The Simpsons at the end. So there is on uh, tape, there's a sort of Neil in The Simpsons type claymation sequence, which is really brilliant. I think it didn't go to series because it didn't do what Americans do so well, because it was too English, and it didn't do what English comedy does so well, because it was in America, it was too American. And so it sort of fell between two stools there.
0: Funnily enough, you now appear in episodes In a number of scenes with Matt LeBlanc. I just saw your tweet earlier, one where you you were appearing side by side for the first time, having previously been doing the scenes with him over the phone. Do you notice any sort of similarities in the way, in the storyline of episodes, in the way that their British show has then been sort of transformed to suit American taste? Do you notice any similarities between that storyline and the way that Oh No Not Them went in terms of its own development?
1: Well, uh, not really, no. I mean, obviously there are similarities because it's English material being done in America. But as I said, they didn't do what they did with Pucks, the series in episodes, um, because David Merkin, who used to write Bob Newhart's show, and now actually is a writer-producer on The Simpsons. He was our writer-producer. And he was kind of not slick enough. He wasn't going to do what they do in episodes. He wasn't going to recast it all with... The fat people are going to cast them all as thin, good-looking people and make it all slick and whack, you know, sort of like the Americans do so well. Everyone's really nice, really. He was a real uh, fan of British comedy, and he was trying to do it as British and anarchic as he could. And so he was a good guy. In a way, I I think he should have taken it further in, in an American direction or taken it further and let it be as British as possible. But I think he must have learnt from the experience because, as I say, shortly after that, The Simpsons came out. I'm not saying it was that you know came from The Young Ones, but I think the people who worked on that then went on to work on The Simpsons and they learnt the way to do it.
0: And the last point I wanted to ask you with regard to Neil and The Young Ones, when we're talking about all of those, for example, spin-offs that you're doing in 84 and then the American restaging and things like that, Did you ever find it sort of odd or in any way just slightly disorienting having portrayed the role in the series and being given direction, I presume it would have been Jeff Posner throughout the series, when you're then being given direction from someone else in a completely different set of circumstances, say for example when you're on the Australian pop show, is that unusual, is that a strange way of working when you're still playing the same part but suddenly everything else around you is different?
1: It was a bit strange in America because, of course, they had certain setups which wouldn't suit our way of doing things, the English way of doing things. And I had to learn how to um, stand my ground because there's a lot of respect for the actors. There's more respect for the actors in America. You know, you see, if you don't like something, they listen. That was my experience. Uh, whereas in this country, if they don't like something, they sort of forget about you and ignore you. But... In Australia, on the whole, most of the Neil project, I got so used to being Neil at any time of day or night, just shove the wig on and, you know, go on live TV, do live interviews over the phone, whatever. And I found him very adaptable. I did a live show, recorded shows. You know, he sort of took over my life, really. So I wasn't really so much taking direction as being a weird, town-trodden, hippie superstar
0: And I mentioned earlier on that Young Ones came along October 1982 and that you'd been doing bits and pieces on television before then, but of course you had already been seen on television throughout 1982 because by the time Young Ones arrived, you were already halfway through the second series of Shine On, Harvey Moon.
1: That's right, yes.
0: Initially you're playing opposite Kenneth Cranham and then again restaged in 1995 or a further series in 1995 opposite Nikki Henson. How did you find that in terms of... It being a comedic drama, but one without a studio audience, and yet it's still your three walls and multi-camera setup.
1: I love working like that. I think it's a shame they don't do it so much anymore. You know, three cams, instead of these long single cam setups, you just do things in little bits. It allows for comic timing much better and not interrupted by audience laughter. I think it makes for some really nice scenes. It does make things look a bit old-fashioned, because it's the way they used to do drama, and it's all a bit indoors. Everything has to be in a set, usually. But I used to love doing that, and Baz Taylor was a brilliant director of that particular medium. It was strange going from the RAF haircut of Shine on Harvey Moon to Neil, sometimes in the same day. You know, if we had a live performance in the evening as Neil, and I'd been recording during the day, Yes, it got quite stressful in a way. And then, of course, after Shine on Harvey Moon, I went on to do Roll Over Beethoven. And that was at the same time as we were doing the Young Ones live on stage tour. So I was working in Elstree in the days, and then each night I'd be in a different town in England doing the Young Ones tour. There was quite a conflict of interest going on.
0: And when you were in the initial series of Shine on Harvey Moon, 82 through to, I think, 85, and then... You were in the final series in 1995, and in that time, of course, television production and television budgets, and just basically all of television itself, had really undergone quite a transformation in terms of evolution of like independent production companies coming along, and perhaps budgets getting a little bit tighter. Did you notice a big difference between the two series, jumping from 85 to 95?
1: I've noticed a big difference nowadays, yes, definitely. But I can't say that there was a big difference with Shine on Harvey Moon um, that later season. Except if I think back over it, it seems to be almost all on location. So even if we were using two cameras, the cameras, of course, became much smaller. I think it was the Bill was the first program to use those uh, very, very mobile, cableless new camera equipment, which sort of revolutionized the way location filming could be done. I mean, I can remember doing something called King and Castle just before the Bill, and we had uh, to do a car chase. And the camera car was following us. You know, the battery and all the crew were following us. And we had to have a piece of cable between the two cars. And if we drove too fast, it pulled the plug out the cable. And we had to go back and that's how we did a car chase. So, yeah, I definitely noticed that the new equipment really transformed the way you could film.
0: And I was good to ask you about King and Castle. How did you enjoy that series? Because, of course, that was by the creator of The Sweeney in Kennedy Martin.
1: That's right. Yeah. It was a big learning experience because it's a completely different sort of show that I think I found the acting quite hard because you have to be sincere and mean what you're saying instead of trying to take the piss all the time, which is what I'm good at. I found it quite hard to carry the show like that and be dynamic enough in that straight role. I think I managed and I learned from that and went on to play several other straight roles. That was a learning curve, really, jumping out of the... Even things like Harvey Moon, I was playing an idiot, which is a funny character, Lou Lewis. And uh, King and Castle wasn't a funny character, and it it took some getting used to.
0: And you can sort of tell over the course of the two series, in the second series, there are some more light-hearted plots, whereas the first series is a bit more gritty. Presumably that was an intentional Change over time, perhaps it's trying to find yeah, maybe. I mean, it series. could
1: be just because they got me with Andy Latour, we wrote some of the episodes of the second series. It could well be that it, that's just my influence. I mean, yeah. it could be that I, I wasn't aware of that actually.
0: I also wanted to ask you about the comic strip as well. Um, the comic strip you initially appeared in the first batch in 1983. That was a show which, again, caused controversy in its own way, which I guess would have been partly intention because Channel 4 wanted to make an impact. But that must have been quite an eclectic series to work on because, of course, you'd be doing a different character and different set of circumstances each and every time.
1: Yeah, and the comic strip was great like that. I mean, the original intention was mine and Peter's double act. There was a treatment knocking around the year before that, which was just going to be The Outer Limits. That was me and Peter's double act which was going to be different episodes each week. That's what Peter and I had always had in mind. And then it grew into, let's have the whole comic strip, because you know what I mean, let's have everybody. It's meant that it's a a harder series to sell because abroad and television channels like to buy, you know, if you think of something like House, very, very successful series, they like to buy, you know, 126 episodes, and they're all roughly the same format. And the comic strip, of course, is... It's harder to sell like that, because each one's its own little film. And some of them are better than others. And some of them have slightly different casts. There's usually a core cast member in it, but they're not always the same casts, which makes them very inconsistent. That's the beauty of them. And those other kind of series run out after five years or something, whereas the comic strip, we're still making comic strip films 30 years later. So I suppose it swings and roundabouts in that sense.
0: And the majority of comic strip episodes, occasionally you will have one which is maybe revisited later on, but the majority of them self-contained, but one sort of took on a life of its own, and that was Bad News Tour, followed by More Bad News, and of course you had albums and you had your live performances and so on. Particularly more bad news, I mean, that again, to myself as a viewer, it looks like it's an immensely enjoyable thing to record. I'm thinking of the sequence with yourself and Gerard Kelly as a director explaining to Den you've got to look mean, for example, when you're making the music video. Um, again, it just it comes across as if you're enjoying it, if you as an actor are enjoying it, then that's going to come across to the viewer.
1: Yeah, it was good fun. It was an absolute fucking laugh doing um, bad news. And we sort of carried on that, the four of us just bickering at each other in four men in a car and four men in a plane. I mean, that was just, in a way, that was bad news revisited from my point of view. It was was (laughs) just the four of us in a confined space, just being horrible to each other. And there's something, I don't know, I I get so nostalgic about that. You know, the four of us sitting in that van in bad news, improvising and just, As Peter says on one of the albums, you know, Adrian says to him, you're just fucking about, aren't you? And Peter says, yeah, we're fucking about, fucking about. We're just fucking about. (laughs) It was great fun. We carried on with four men in the car and four men in the plane. I mean, half of those arguments are real anyway. Stuck in that plane and it started to rain in Spain. The crew disappeared and we're just all sort of bickering at each other in a miniature plane in the middle of a muddy field. It was very funny.
0: And you also co-wrote with Doug Lucy. You co-wrote the episode "Fund Seekers" in '87. That's set in Ibiza. It was actually filmed
1: in Ibiza. Yeah, we were. We filmed in San Antonio in Ibiza. Yeah. And what was the
0: schedule like for that? Because it looked like—I mean, I just watched it early on today, and it looked like. I was trying to work out, is this IB like before or is it somewhere that looks very much like it? Because either way, it looks splendid. But was that something that had to be done on a relatively tight time scale Or did you have like the time to to, to be able to go out there and, and to choose exactly what locations you wanted and to be able to, to really make it look the like part?
1: I wrote it with Doug Lucy and we, we sort of imagined it, neither of us having been there. And we wrote, I think, yes, we thought, what would they call a bar? Let's say we call it Sergeant Pepper's Bar. You know, anything Brit, that's the kind of place we want it to be. And then I went out there on a location recce with Peter. That's when we really sorted out the look of the thing. And uh, Peter and I had maybe four days, five days. We just saw the whole island. We went everywhere all over the whole island. And sure enough, there was a Sergeant Pepper's bar. We thought we'd invented it, but there it was. There was one. You know, we looked around it and thought, this is perfect. We found all the locations, the church in the village in the in the middle in Santa Gertrudis. We just, you know, got a hire car and spent four days looking around Ibiza, which is a nice thing to have to do, It's right into San Antonio. And I think Peter had to get back. I spent another day by myself still looking for that church, because that's right in the middle, the final location with the church, the quieter village. The time we got all the actors and the crew out there, we pretty much knew every single location, every single shop, pretty much pre-planned, you know. It was weird, though, getting the cast all to stay, Kathy Burke and, and the like, in this Costa del Ibiza-type hotel where they were having karaoke and hokey-cokey lines and all of that. And we were actually staying in these hotels right in the thick of it. So we were sort of living the, not the dream, living the roles anyway.
0: And did you have, for example, was there anything that you actually saw there when you were there, right in the thick of it, was there anything that you sort of witnessed in the hotel or anything like that that you could then
1: add into the filming? Is that something you're keen
0: on or do you prefer to stick to the...
1: Oh, no, I would always shove stuff in if we see it. Funnily enough, there was a bit which looks like there's a Spanish girl who's pregnant who works in the hotel and she's kind of walking around looking very lost. And there's a scene where her dad is arguing with her and the whole village is angry which we did in the bar in Santa Gertrudes and it looks so authentic and we've got this bearded black haired man talking Spanish but that was Baz Taylor the director unbeknownst to us he's a fluent Spanish speaker and looks very very Spanish Um, and we got him directing it and he's brilliant in that scene it looks so authentic you think god where did they get him but it's actually the director of the film we got lucky we didn't know that
0: that's amazing I suppose little things like that. I mean, that obviously, that kind of thing you, you wouldn't be aware of as a viewer, but I think that things like the comic strip, for example, the comic strip box set, it, it lends itself to seeing things a second and a third time when you hear little details like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. There's lots of stuff in it. I mean, there's bloody Keith Allen and his brother Kevin, and they were, they were <laughs> he was kind of social secretary. You know, when people weren't filming, if they weren't filming, they were off to those water parks and things. And Keith would be making them all do all the water slides and all that. And so everybody had a ludicrous time.
0: You mentioned that you, you co-wrote Fund Seekers, and, and you mentioned about co-writing, for example, some of the episodes of King Castle. What's your own preference? Do you prefer writing in a partnership?
1: Well, no, these days I prefer writing on my own, but those days I preferred writing in a partnership. I used to write with Peter Richardson and Pete Richards in the very beginning, and then with um, Christopher Douglas, who writes Ed Reardon on the radio. He was the writer on um, the Nicholas Craig shows that we did, and I started out writing with him on the book of Nicholas Craig. I used to prefer writing with other people. I think it's better if you want to just have ridiculous comedy because you make each other laugh but the writing that i'm doing nowadays is is not just comedy it's more in the comedy drama department also you can just get on with it if you're writing on your own you don't have to make appointments and meet and everything
0: now i wanted to ask you a couple of points about filth rich and Catflap from 1987 and your role was filthy ralph or ralph filthy as you prefer to be called Mm. now given The role that you were previously playing the year before and did the year after in King and Castle, was it nice to have a complete U-turn to where you're playing a character where if Ralph Filthy's got any redeeming qualities, then you have to scratch quite hard beneath the surface to find out what they are?
1: Yeah, no, there's nothing redeeming about Ralph Filthy. Um, I really enjoyed playing that, and I had the opportunity to... I'd been in shows, I still am in shows in, in the West End, and I'd met in the 70s, I'd met a lot of the old boys, chorus people and the, the people who work in the shows who'd been working in shows for, you know, since the 50s and things. And they all speak this Polari language, you know, this gypsy showbiz mix, gay scene code language, you know, like a sort of um, look at the lattes on that bone lubi, you know, so everything's in a kind of code language. And I was able to go through it with everything I knew with Ben Elton, who was writing the scripts. So we shoved a lot in, which makes Ralph Filthy really quite weird for for a sitcom character. He's talking his own language, virtually. You know, he calls everyone daughter. Yes. That gave it a real rich texture, I think. it was That was fun to do.
0: I one thing I must ask, because I know that people have speculated about this ever since the series ended. Not just the way that the series ends with Ralph revealing that he's wearing a harness because they need to keep his character alive for the second series, but also at the end of the series, the continuity announcer on BBC2 says Phil Fridge and Catfab will be back for another series later on in the year. What was your understanding? Was there a second series in the works? that didn't happen for whatever reason.
1: Do you know, I've never found that out. We were all surprised when he made that announcement. We'll be back for another series next year. It's the first we'd all heard of it. Certainly the first I'd heard of it. It would have been good, wouldn't it? You know, I don't know. Maybe there were powers that be at the BBC who said, no, it bloody won't. Because it was fairly disgusting, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it got pulled, I don't know. Or maybe Rick and Aid uh, got together and thought, you know, the offer was there to do more Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. And maybe they thought, look, we don't need all the others. We don't need Nigel. We don't need to make it so difficult. We don't need Ben, because Ben was writing the scripts on Filthy Rich and Kepler. And they thought, no, we can just do the bits we like, which is bottom, basically. Uh, So maybe they cancelled it. I don't know.
0: And it's a show which, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to get as much of an aiding as... The Young Ones, for example. I know it had a release on DVD for its 25th anniversary and occasionally has turned up on channels like Dave, for example, but it's one that doesn't seem to be quite as prominent in the canon. And it would be nice to see it being repeated again because there's some lovely stuff in that series. And people might say now always full of like sort of topical references, faturism and so on, but I suppose you could say, well, so was The Young Ones and all that shows of that era.
1: There's something that doesn't quite gel as much with Filthy Rich and Cat Flap as the other series you mentioned. It's harder to grab hold of and would have been harder to sustain, I think, than, say, Bottom, which is simple. The premise is simple. Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, I don't know. I'd like to have done more. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: I suppose you could argue that it, the story has come to a conclusion because through Ralph Filthy's efforts then he's managed to make Richie Richard, the only person on television, so therefore there
1: is no other story to... You know, you've seen it more recently than me. I can't remember <laughs> any of that, you're saying.
0: <laughs> I think it was through a series of um, tabloid articles involving blackmail and all sorts, with uh, a character not dissimilar to a certain newspaper proprietor. Also, in 1987, you appeared in one episode of Blackadder the Third. I was going to ask you about particularly the rehearsal process for that, because when some of the documentaries came out about Blackadder... For its 25th anniversary, I noticed a number of people talking about how some actors didn't particularly like the rehearsal process because everybody in the cast was invited to sort of chip in and suggest amendments to lines and so on. And some actors just didn't like working like that. So how did you find that for yourself in that episode?
1: Well, I was used to that. That's the way comedian actors will work. But I don't think it's fair to say everyone was invited to do so. I think there was a tight group you know, John Lloyd, the producer, particularly, Rowan and uh, Richard, and to a lesser extent, Ben and they were a tight group who'd known each other for years, rather like we were on the young ones. And so they were, you know, the board of directors, as it were, and you could chip in a bit, but basically they were it was their their game, you know what I mean. But I'm fine with chipping in. There comes a point when you want to lock it off so you can learn it, though, for my taste. They went on changing it too long, up to the last minute. I think to get really good performances at a sort of earlier point than that, I'd like to lock it off and say, now, you know, we're not going to change it anymore because you can lap yourself, you know, you can come around to where you started from. I think it can get a bit neurotic. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier on Nicholas Craig. She co wrote with Christopher Douglas. Have you ever encountered anybody in? The acting profession who has ever perhaps taken offence from anybody who said, Oh, you know, that particular line of Nicholas Craig's so that wasn't in my direction, was it? Or alternatively, has anybody said to you, Do you know I know somebody exactly like that that you're portraying? I know exactly who that's based upon.
1: I've met hundreds of people who think it's based on them. In fact, one dear old actor said, How did you know I collected Victorian chamber parts? And between us we know a lot of actors and we got you know, we got it quite Accurate, I think. I'm less likely to meet the ones who disagree with it because they're not going to, you know, make a point of saying they dislike it. On the whole, I've met people who who say, oh, I show it to the cast and every production I'm in, that's more likely to happen. I bumped into a teacher from RADA the other day on the street and they said they use it for their students, the book. I think he's been sort of taken under the wing of the acting profession, Nicholas Craig, as the whole profession's kind of dodgy alter ego.
0: And I wanted to ask you about just how much research goes into one of those programs. For example, I watched the costume drama episode, which you did for the TV Hell Night in 1992. I mean, just the the wealth of clips, for example, the recurring instance of the same goblet in repeated costume dramas. I mean, just how many manners does it take to actually find little details like that out and find out little instances of the repetition of the same type of lane for example in multiple
1: shows hundreds of man hours go into that initially we thought well we could get researchers and say go and find us examples of this or find us you know find us a fun this will be funny or that'll be funny but of course if you go somewhere looking for something you think you know what you're going to see in advance that's never the funny thing so there was no way around it but to see hundreds of hours of stuff because who would have thought that accidentally checking into a brothel for travel programs was such a repeated thing. We found it in about seven travel programs. The travel presenter, very humorously, accidentally checks themselves, thinking it's a hotel, into a brothel. We couldn't have told a researcher, go and find that. It's just something. And the goblet that you mentioned, you know, you just happen to notice it and think, hang on, that's, isn't that the same goblet? Then let's look at all the others. Oh, there it is again. So it was many, many man hours. And I have to say that Christopher Douglas was more of a man than me. I did some, and then I just got brain dead with it. He ended up doing the the really hard work.
0: And Nicholas Craig, of course, he does continue to appear on occasion. I think the last time was a few years ago in a Stuart Lee-produced theatre show. Is that right?
1: That's right, at the Festival Hall. That was Nicholas Craig's last appearance, uh, claiming that he could have been a stand-up comedian if he'd chosen to be. Um, it was damn good fun to do that. Um, something called it last the 1984 show.
0: Now a couple of other questions about sitcom roles. Um, you portrayed Lawrence Didcot, the French teacher in Bonjour la classe. I suppose you could see he's sort of diametrically opposed to Ralph Fiennes because he was unfailingly nice to the point of being irritating. unintentionally
1: irritating. Yes, yeah, incredibly irritating man. Yes, that was a fun character as well. I I was always um, upset they never did a second series of that.
0: Of course, 1997 as a pilot, and then 1991 through to 2001, you appeared in a rather sort of, I suppose you could say, a sort of a static role, largely in the armchair in front of ITV in the Grimleys. Now, by this point, like a lot of sitcoms, they had transferred from multi-camera studio audience to then multi-camera without an audience and by this point you've now got single camera without an audience how do you enjoy that way of working in comparison to the other ways
1: well it was pretty good he's very good that guy um, jed mercurio he ended up directing it as well he knows what he's doing it was pretty good for me because of course my character never got out the chair until the last episode So because it was cheaper to do it that way, they just did all my scenes in one big block. So actually, I could do the whole series in a few days. You don't get paid so much, but it does mean you're in and out rather quickly. And, you know, they'd just sit me in there and cover me in dirt and muck and food and stuff and then bring various other actors in to sort of shout at me or talk to me. And I'd insult them, and then they'd go away again. And then they'd pour more food over me. It's quite depressing, actually, now I come to think (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and we recently saw you in Boomers and I know that a lot of the work you've done recently has been in West End shows like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Wicked and also in the the Doctor Who live shows as well What's next for yourself? What's coming up for yourself later in 2014?
1: It's a sitcom actually, a new sitcom with uh, a new Jack Whitehall sitcom written by Freddie Saibon and it's a post-apocalyptic sitcom there's been a nuclear apocalypse, and we're all sort of living in what was the towns, all forests. And I play um, Stevie Giggle, who's a scouser, who's a, a, a like was a part of the Giggle Brothers, children's entertainers on the telly. Um, but he's eaten his partner because it's post-apocalyptic, and he's looking around for other people to eat, really. And it's got uh, Jack Whitehall, as I say, Esther Smith. Tom Davis, it's got a whole load of the comedians that you see in, in the smaller roles nowadays in the in tele shows as well. And just a whole bunch of people, as well as Robert Bathurst, the brilliant Robert Bathurst, Caroline Quentin. It's got a massive cast. And it's a great big sprawling mess of funny stuff. We do, we've been doing it all summer and getting sort of dirty and stinging nettles and you know all out in the undergrowth as it were
0: and is this something that's going to be on before the end of the year as far as you're aware
1: no it's going to be on in January on ITV2 it's pretty cool Nigel
0: Plain I want to thank you very very much indeed for joining us today on the sitcom club it's been lovely speaking to yourself and just to bring the conversation full circle because you mentioned right at the outset about watching dad's army as a viewer for anybody who hasn't seen it I definitely recommend you visit YouTube, and type in, who do you think you're kidding Mr. Hitler, Idiot Bastard Band, and they will see yourself performing the said
1: oh, music. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And
0: you're actually, you're actually doing the, the, not just not just the, the cut down version for the, the TV show, but you're actually doing the full lyrics that I guess most people haven't actually heard.
1: That's right. We do the whole song. The Idiot Bastard Band, yes. With the, with the late Simon Brint from Raw Sex, the wonderful Simon Brint on keyboards.
0: As Nigel Plainer mentioned, Cockroaches will be on ITV2 next year, produced by Big Talk Productions. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, we're normally to be found at The Sitcom Club on Twitter, or alternatively The Sitcom Club on Facebook, or just plain old sitcomclub.com. On that latter link, you can find all of the previous episodes of the show going all the way back to April 2013. There's well over 50 episodes in the archive now, and you can subscribe to them using iTunes or your preferred podcatcher. All the details are on
1: sitcomclub.com. Meantime, we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the sitcom club.